Here you are. BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, let me just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. Excuse me. You all registered to vote? How you doing, man? All right, all right. You registered to vote? All right. The man trying to register voters is Patrick Penn, a voter registration coordinator with an organization called the New Florida Majority that's trying to mobilize the state's diverse communities ahead of the next election. This is important work that needs to happen in every state, but especially in the southeastern battlegrounds. If a record number of black and brown voters can register, show up, and have their ballots counted in Florida, Georgia, and North Carolina, they could very well deliver the presidency and the Senate to Democrats in 2020. Today, the Southeast is being shaped by many of the same political and demographic trends that have transformed the Southwestern battlegrounds we covered in the last episode. The cities and surrounding suburbs are growing, they're becoming younger and more diverse, and they're home to college-educated voters who are increasingly rejecting Trump's Republican Party. And while white voters in the Southeast have always been more conservative than their counterparts in the Southwest, the region also has a larger, faster-growing population of black voters than anywhere else in the country. That's a big reason why Andrew Gillum came so close to becoming the first black governor of Florida in 2018. Republican Ron DeSantis beat out his Democrat opponent, Andrew Gillum, by point. 8%. Jeez, these are such tight mm. races. And the same is true of the woman you'll be hearing from quite a bit in this episode. Under the watch of the now former Secretary of State, democracy failed Georgia. So let's be clear, this is not a speech of concession. Because concession means to acknowledge an action is right, true, or proper. In 2020, Florida will play its role as the perennial presidential battleground of all battlegrounds. It will likely be joined by North Carolina, where there will also be a competitive Senate race. And for the first time, Georgia, where there will also be two competitive Senate races. To win, Democrats will have to build on what candidates like Stacey Abrams did. Register a lot of people who don't often vote, persuade them to turn out on election day, and overcome all the obstacles that have been put in place to make it harder for black and brown voices to be heard. It won't be easy. But thanks to Abrams, Gillum, and organizers like Patrick, we have a roadmap to follow. I'm John Favreau. Welcome to the wilderness. You already registered to vote? I'm registered. All right. You already registered. Y'all up to date and everything. Good to hear that, man. Hey, hey, use that. Use, use your strength, use your voice, you know? Patrick Penn is walking around the mostly black Overtown neighborhood of Miami. I do voter registration, and I basically help the community. <laughs> Patrick's especially passionate about the right to vote, since he knows what it's like not to have it. I'm an ex-felon, you know, I'm, I'm a returning citizen, I should say, really. 
But um, yeah, when Amendment 4 got passed, I basically heard about, okay, now returning citizens could go and get their rights restored and get their voter registration card because of Amendment 4. I said, I want to basically go get registered to vote because your voice definitely does count, you know, especially within your community. Florida's Amendment 4 was a 2018 ballot referendum that restores voting rights for individuals convicted of a felony who finished their time behind bars. It was a huge victory. If all returning citizens in the state of Florida registered to vote, that would bring 1.4 million new voters onto the rolls. Of course, the Republicans who control the Florida State House know this, which is why they quickly passed a law that requires all returning citizens to pay certain court fines and fees before registering to vote basically a poll tax. A federal judge has already blocked the law, which would make it a felony to register without paying the fees. But in the meantime, it's confused and scared off a lot of potential new voters, which was sort of the point. Yeah, matter of fact, maybe a week ago, I ran into a guy I actually was incarcerated with, and was like, wow, man, I know you. Come here, man. And we hugged, and it was like, hey, man, what's going on, this and that, that. And it was like, hey, man, you need, are you registered to vote? He's like, what? I can't register to vote. The Republican response to Amendment 4 is just one of the many voter suppression tactics that make it harder for people to cast their ballot, especially people of color. But Patrick has also discovered that it's not just laws themselves that are preventing people from voting. Generally, I would say it'd be more black that's not registered, young black men, you know, for the most part. And that's for the typical reasons why you don't want the names involved with anything with the government. It's frustrating because it's like, wow, you, you, you have your rights, you know, and you can really take advantage and use that in a powerful level. And you just choose to remain dormant. You know, it's like you're just sitting there and I, people done died for us to be able to vote, you know. This is the underbelly of voter suppression that is tougher to, to shine a light on, the mental impact that it's having, how their vote doesn't matter, and how, you know, what's the point when they're going to do what, what they, what they want to do anyway. Cornell Belcher is a Democratic pollster who worked for Barack Obama. He told me that in a lot of his focus groups in southern states like Georgia and Florida, He's been hearing people express a deep cynicism about voting and politics that surprised him. And I gotta tell you, I haven't heard that sort of length of conversation about their vote not mattering and how the system is rigged since Gore Bush from Florida. There's a large swath of the electorate that thinks they're not counting their votes or people are working actively to stop them from voting. And when you look at a place like, you know, Florida or Georgia, shaving off two or three percent of African-American turnout is, is the difference between winning and losing, not even close. I wanted to explore this further. So for our Southeastern Focus Group, we sat down with a group of voters who don't get enough attention. People who cast their ballot for Barack Obama in 2012, but then didn't vote in 2016 or voted for a third party candidate. An analysis by Data for Progress found that while 9% of Obama 2012 voters went for Donald Trump in 2016, 7% of Obama voters stayed home, and another 3% voted for a third-party candidate. These voters are disproportionately younger 
and people of color. Most of the voters in our focus group were also black or Latino, and their views about politics generally track with what Patrick and Cornell have been hearing. How would you say that politics makes you feel right now? It's comedy for me. From both sides. Sometimes doesn't, I doesn't even want to watch it. All right, let's go, let's go one at a time. We can go around because I know a lot of people have opinions on this one. <laughs> it's gut-wrenching just the not knowing what's going on. There's always something going on. That's the thing. Yeah, it's always changing. So it's kind of like, oh, what today? You know, what's going to happen? You know? No, to me, it's the way I've been. I've been here since 1968 and went through different crises here in the U.S. And I've never seen politicians act the way they act now on both sides. And how are they acting? Like kids. Because any news station, I'm sorry, any news station you go to, MSN, Fox, whatever, the, all, everything that's happened seems like it's a joke to them. The way they present it, it's like a joke. You know, it's a comedy thing. Instead of being serious, really taking it serious, there's something serious. Yeah, no, it's this development of fake news and no one trusts each other. It's snippet talks, you know, they're, the politicians are just trying to get on Twitter for a blurb. There's no, there's no real talk about the issues. It's all about- Ratings. Yeah, ratings. I mean, if you have one side against the other, they talk for two minutes, nothing gets solved, and you move on to the next topic. There's no compromise anymore. There's no smart talk. There's no one there being a leader. Uh, thinking about the last election you voted in, what are the reasons you chose to vote? I wanted to make a difference. You wanted to make a difference? Yes. And you, and you thought, in, in what way did you think? Well, my, my thought process is I'm going to still vote, whether the, the votes are stolen or lost or whatever the case may be, I'm going to make you work to get what you want. I'm going to vote, and if you want to steal the votes or do whatever, you're going to have to do it. So I wanted to make a difference. Okay. Anyone else? I was trying to avoid Trump getting in and thought my vote counted. But that was in look, 16, Look how we were. Mm -hmm. I skipped that one. I didn't like neither. I didn't like neither Kennedy. <laughs> it's not that these voters are apathetic. They brought up all kinds of issues that they clearly care about. Everything from health care and education to housing prices and police brutality. They just don't really see how a lot of these problems get solved by voting. For most of these communities, the politicians that have been elected, whether they participated or not, have not changed the outcomes of their lives. That's Stacey Abrams, whose acute understanding of this reality guided her 2018 campaign to become governor of Georgia, a campaign where she was denied victory by just 54,000 votes out of 4 million in an election that was rife with voter suppression. But what Stacey achieved is historic. Cornell Belcher again. If you look at what happened in Georgia in 2018, I think you're seeing the fruition of of some of what we were thinking and seeing in 2012. If you tap the, the voters in Georgia who are sporadic or not participating and you increase registration in Georgia, you can really put Georgia in play. Stacy came really close and that wasn't because of vote switching, that was primarily because of expanding the electorate. We increased youth participation rates in Georgia in 2018 by 139%. We increased African-American participation by 40%. But to put that in context, in 2014, 1.1 million Democrats voted for governor on the Democratic side. In 2018, 1.2 million black people voted for me. This is something I accomplished raising $42 million, which is a fraction of what often goes into presidential campaigns. 
Despite the narrow loss, Stacy pulled off an incredible feat. So I sat down with her to learn more about how she did it. So I wanted to start with your race in 2018 at the beginning. You win a competitive primary. There hasn't been a Democratic governor of Georgia in over a decade at that point. There's never been a black woman governor anywhere. But you're looking at a state that Trump only won by five points in 2016. What are those early meetings like with your strategist? What's the strategy for winning Georgia at the outset? Our campaign from the very beginning believed that you had to center communities of color. You had to lift up the issues facing the marginalized and the disadvantaged but that we also had to be very intentional about going into white enclaves, places where Democrats had often given up hope or where we presumed that they didn't expect to see me. But we not only had me show up, we advertised there. We were probably the only Democratic campaign to be on country radio. <laughs> now, we also did the same thing in urban areas and rural areas that were predominantly black. We did our best to reach every single community. Can you talk about, I know you guys made a decision to not do the usual thing that Democratic campaigns and consultants want you to do, which is spend all of your money on, on TV and, and, and radio. Um, but you, you really invested a lot in sort of a voter registration, voter turnout program. So in the primary, we began building towards the general by recognizing that the first mistake that we could make was taking voters out of the pool. Uh, because often you're told to look for super voters, midterm voters. You, you are told to sort of sift out your voter opportunities. And when you do that, when you score your voters and say, well, these people will never vote for me because they don't vote, or they'll never vote for me because they voted this way too many times, it's self-fulfilling. You will never get voters you don't talk to. And so we began by creating the largest universe of possible voters. The second thing we did was realize that you had to talk to them and that these are voters who probably were not going to be watching television early. They weren't going to be listening to the radio. They needed a conversation. And so we started building our field program in June and July of 2017 for an election that would be in November of 2018. And because of that, we were able to knock on doors and have thoughtful conversations months in advance of both the primary and the general. Can you talk a little bit about what that field program looked like and, and sounded like with those conversations because sure. you couldn't be everywhere so you had this whole team of people talking in fact at the beginning they didn't talk about me mm. we did our first pass of uh, organizing by having people ask what do you need how can we help uh. so part of my ethos as a as a state legislator as the democratic leader was that my team we had a slogan like when someone called the office your job was to say how can i help not to pass them off to someone else, not to say it's not my job. Your job was to figure it out. Our campaign was built around the same idea. And we spent more, as we raised more money, we spent more money in field. We did some of the traditional things. We eventually went on TV. We did digital. But field had to be the baseline because if you didn't get to the people and have the conversation about why their vote wouldn't matter, all of the advertising in the world wouldn't matter because they would, they would essentially ignore it. Can you talk about the challenges of expanding the electorate, um, which you certainly did in Georgia? So I, I want to touch on two things. I want to make sure people understand the difference between a swing voter and a low propensity voter. Yeah. A swing voter tends to go back and forth between political ideology. A low propensity voter says it's not worth participating, so I'm just going to stay home. Mm -hmm. And they tend to only vote usually in presidential elections. We had to deal with both groups, although swing voters are a much smaller group, and that's one of the issues in the South. 
you don't have a lot of swing voters in the South. What you have are a lot of low propensity voters who tried it once, it didn't work, they gave up. Or their parents tried it once, and so each generation someone ventures out, sees the sun, nothing changes, they go back inside. So before I ran for governor, I started an organization called the New Georgia Project because Georgia had, at the time in 2014, 800,000 unregistered people of color. And so New Georgia Project registered all these voters. But the reality is the hardest to register populations are also going to be the hardest to turn out. Those low propensity registrants usually have a 20% likelihood of voting once you get them on the rolls. And for those low propensity voters, it's not simply about getting them on the rolls, it's making sure they understand how voting works. And so part of what we call voter registration is also voter education. It's connecting the dots between getting that card and someone teaching you how to use it. It's like giving someone a license to drive, but without ever teaching them how to turn the car on. And so we tried to correlate those two. So I, uh, for this project, did four different focus groups. Uh, the one that I did in the Southeast was in Miami, and I spoke to Obama voters who either sat out in 16 or voted third party. And it was a pretty diverse group of voters. And what I got from them more than anything was a, sort of a deep disgust with politics in general. We have to remember that for a lot of these communities, it is a tendency to not vote, one, because they don't know what they're voting for, and they'd rather not make a mistake than make a mistake. They have deep distaste for politicians, because these are people who come to their neighborhoods to ask for a vote, but never come back to deliver on their promises. And three, they feel duped because they had faith, they had hope, they participated, and it didn't work. Part of what we tried to do with our campaign was acknowledge that, to begin the conversation with, look, this isn't about just electing a single person. This is about what change do you want? So let's talk about what that change could look like and why you might want to have it. And so instead of offering sort of a laundry list of opportunities, what we tried to do with our field work, and we tried to reinforce that with digital campaigns where we talk to voters and had them talk about their issues. It was to say, look, I understand the real impact that this has on you. We talked to domestic workers who could not take care of their families because if they lived too far out, they didn't have access to public transit, so they couldn't get to the jobs. We talked to entrepreneurs who couldn't get access to capital because they lived in communities where the bank shut down during the recession and never came back. And so we tried to find real examples that weren't so pablum that it's the same thing everyone complains about. Jobs and healthcare. Exactly. And <laughs> we talked about, here's what happens in Hancock County when this thing happens. That's smart. And by doing so, and by starting so early, and by having real people have the conversation, it penetrated. And I think that's one of the successes that I had. I didn't have to be the person talking. In fact, I shouldn't have been the person. Yeah. Because when it's the politician, it's about getting a vote for me. But when it's someone who's from your neighborhood, someone from your community, then it becomes real. And what we did intentionally was hire locally. We had more than a thousand people that we hired across the state, but we were very thoughtful about making sure they were hired from within the community. We didn't bus people in from Atlanta down to Albany. We hired in Albany. And more importantly, we hired in Pooler. We hired in Rabin. We made sure that we were talking to people from community, about community, so that their connection to the vote was real and authentic. So uh, you're talking to the next Democratic nominee for president and uh, her, his campaign manager. Mm -hmm. What's your best case for why they should play big in Georgia? 
because Georgia has the youngest population of a battleground state. We have the highest percentage of African-Americans of a battleground state, and we've proven that both communities will turn out. It's 16 electoral votes. It's two Senate seats. It is the ability to win a state house by flipping 16 seats, which we can do because we flipped 11 in 2018. You do that, you've now added at least two new congressional seats to the tally after redistricting. Those are things that you need long term. In Georgia, we've packaged them up and we're a really cheap date. (laughs) As Stacy says, expanding the electorate isn't easy. Just because people who tend to stay home are more likely to look like Democrats, just because they tend to be young, black, and brown, doesn't mean that their political views are aligned with Democratic activists or even regular Democratic voters. They're more skeptical of politicians and more disappointed with politics in general. But we also know that these people can be persuaded to vote if organizers and candidates are willing to show up and listen to their concerns. And not just a few weeks before the election, either. We heard this from Stacey Abrams, from Christine Marsh in Arizona, and from Angela Aldis in Pennsylvania. It's a strategy that's also being put to good use in another southeastern battleground, Florida. We'll find out how after the break. In order to win in 2020, Democrats need to take a page out of the Stacey Abrams playbook and do the long, hard work of making sometimes voters always voters. Often, that means meeting people where they live, both literally and metaphorically. Rosie Gonzalez-Spears, who spent time as the executive director of Forward Florida Action, a nonprofit founded by Andrew Gillum in the wake of 2018, knows this to be true. I really believe that all politics is local. And in the conversations that I've had with folks and that we have here, the best way to show that it matters is is when you can point to a local decision that has impacted them. So just a few days ago, we were speaking with some organizers. They were saying that they are on the doors and that they're having a really hard time getting folks to understand the importance of voting. And what we have said is, well, tell us about what's happening in the community that you're trying to register voters. So there's a a community essentially being gentrified, folks are being priced out, um, and there's a lot of meetings taking place. So if we're able to say, well, you know who makes that decision? Your local mayor is the one that needs to sign off on that you need to register to vote so that you can vote for that person, that you have a say in who that person is. That is really how we overcome the cynicism on the ground, is by making it hyper-local. One group that's doing just that is New Florida Majority, which you heard about at the top of the episode with Patrick. Across town, in the community of Doral, that organization is working to organize a heavily Venezuelan community. My name is Gina Romero. I work for the New Florida Majority, and I'm a Miami-Dade organizer. So I lived in Doral for the past 14 years, 
It's a really nice community, and I've seen how it's grown over the past several years, especially since the new wave of Venezuelans arrived. You know, many of them bringing with them or opening new businesses here. So every month we do a gathering with the residents of the draw community, and basically we're helping the community so that every day it becomes more and more engaged, going to city hall, going to the commission and talking to them, right? So that they feel and they realize that their problems can be expressed and that they will be listened to, that their voices will actually be heard. One local problem that nearly everyone in the community can agree upon is an issue you probably won't hear about from any of the presidential candidates. Garbage! Specifically, the Medley landfill, which residents have taken to calling Mount Trashmore. Ultimamente es más concentrado el olor de basura. Lately, the smell of trash has become more concentrated. It's unbearable. But now, the contract with the trash company is coming to an end. But we've learned that they want to extend it. And on top of that, they want to increase the dump's height. We said, oh my god, no more. Ya no más. Suficiente. Enough. And that's when we went, you know, let's take action. We have to do something. And so we took it. We called out the community. We went to City Hall. We spoke with the mayor. Many mothers were there. They stated their cases of their kids who were sick and of how the smell of trash was impacting their day-to-day lives. You know, kids who are cooped up at home because they can't, they, they want to go outside, they want to play in the park, play soccer, but because of the constant smell, they can't. And that's really how you begin to awaken in people that desire to participate in a democracy so that a person doesn't take things with indifference and doesn't keep thinking, oh, I don't care what the government does with me. Gina and her fellow organizers saw this local problem as an opportunity to engage people in activism and politics that went beyond Mount Trashmore. In fact, after we had that city council meeting, you could see on the social media networks the community now asking questions, you know, about a particular streetlight that wasn't working. Like, okay, is that a county problem or a city problem? And you see that the community now raising questions like, why do we vote for politicians who don't do anything for us? So that is the nice thing. You are awakening in them a curiosity about a just democracy, right? Who is the public official that you really want for you, for your community, for the place where you live? And so, like, from there, you take the next step to see who is the governor that you want, the president that you want. And you see how you begin to awaken in the community an interest for those issues. And like what I say all the time is that these small issues, local issues, those are the ones that have the biggest impact on our lives because they are the issues of our day to day. And you see, because you were indifferent during a vote and you allowed a politician to get away with not doing anything, that's when you, as years go by, you think to yourself, we should have voted for this person who really would have done something to improve traffic or to improve the quality of life. And basically it's a lesson that you give people. Unconsciously, people begin to realize and they begin to wake up. 
This is especially important work to do in Doral, a community that swung towards Republicans by 20 points between 2016 and 2018. Erasing that deficit in 2020 seems like a daunting challenge. But Rosie Gonzalez Spears doesn't want Democrats to give up on Florida. I think that national Democrats continue to underestimate how likely it is that we can win Florida. People kind of discount Florida and they write off Florida. They'll say, oh, I don't know. I don't think we're going to win Florida. We have to figure out how to piece together Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. And I just always say, look at the numbers. I mean, this state, if we do the work early here, there is no reason why Democrats don't win in here. We just have to put in the work and we have to do it all. If the Latino community shows up, we will win this state. That, of course, is a big if. I will say the starkest thing for me when I saw the numbers was Latinos. 2016, Hillary Clinton got 64% of the Latino vote here. In 2018, Andrew Gillum received 47% of the Latino vote. That is huge. Those numbers are one sign of a larger, pretty troubling trend. In recent years, Democrats have been struggling with the Latino community in Florida. Between the 2014 and 2018 midterms, while Latino turnout in Florida jumped an impressive eight points, Democrats received four percentage points less of the Latino vote. Not great. So what's going on? I really think that Democrats nationally don't fully appreciate and understand the complexity of the Latino community, specifically in Florida. I'm a Dominican from the Bronx. (laughs) And when you speak to Dominicans and Puerto Ricans and South Americans in the Northeast, nine out of 10 times you're speaking to Democrats. And that is taken for granted. Here in Florida, that's not the case, right? Here you have Venezuelans, you have Cubans, You have Puerto Ricans who just came from Puerto Rico. So the complexities of the messaging that is given to the Latino community in Florida is critical for us to be able to turn out Latinos here. So by that, I mean, like, we can't just make one message to, quote unquote, Hispanics and blanket it out to everyone. We really need to understand the subcultures within the cultures so that we can speak to people and meet them where they are. I absolutely hate saying this, but you know who seems to understand this reality? The Trump campaign. For the better part of a year, they've been running Spanish language Facebook ads targeting different Latino communities in Florida. Many of them are about standing up against socialism, including the socialist governments of Venezuela and Cuba. It's a tactic that was also used against Andrew Gillum in 2018. If I could give one piece of advice to the presidentials right now on on how to win Florida is figure out the socialism question, because Donald Trump and the Republicans have already decided who they are running against. It doesn't matter who the nominee is. They're going to call us a socialist. That message, I believe, was tested right here on Andrew Gillum in Florida. The attack ads that they ran against him, the mailers that they sent directly targeting Latinos here had an impact. The campaign did what they could, but were never fully able to recover from that narrative 
in the Latino community. It's very real here in a way that there's a lot of firsthand experience here in South Florida specifically. I heard this in our Miami focus group. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. At first, there wasn't a lot of love for the president. One of the participants, who was born in Cuba, started off by criticizing Trump for his Cuba policy and for breaking campaign promises. Another participant, who was born in Ecuador, called Trump a security risk and complained about his policies favoring the rich. But as the conversation moved on, neither of these men sounded like traditional Democratic voters. Do you think that Trump has kept his promises? Not all of them. He has changed a lot of stuff, but... Which ones do you think he's kept? It's hard to say. Is he, he, has, he, has, he has a little more control about the people coming into the United States. I will say that. That's one thing that is good. Like, I'm not against immigrants coming in, but coming the right way with paper, not with no papers. And that's something that also is killing America. Like, you have all, all these criminals from Mexico, or they go to Mexico and they come to the United States, and we get them in here, so. I'm registered as independent. Okay. And I vote because I like some of the, the Republican views on everything, some of the stuff, the moderate people, not those way off guys. And the Democrats, I'm not too crazy on also some of the programs they want to give a lot of free things and free people help to everybody. I don't want, so I vote more for who I think at that moment is going to be good for the, for the country. From there, I asked everyone their opinion of the Democratic Party. I think Democrats are babysitters sometimes. I think they give too much. Sometimes it makes people lazy. And so I can't always agree with Democrats. I feel like Democrats are kind of like a cover-up for socialism. Yeah, for communism. I think the same thing. They want like, to control you, things. Yeah. Like, you want to take from the middle. You. you don't even take from the rich. You take from the middle and give it to the poor. That's what they do. And they just leave from that. And the, I'm, I'm not Republican or Democratic. Um, I just see who's the best for the country and who can do the best. And Bernie Sanders, a lot of good promise. Medicare, free Medicare for everyone, free student loan for everyone. <laughs> it sounds too good to be true. Somebody has to pay for it. So no, no, I mean, no. we came from a part that was socialist and it actually backfired at us like big time. There was like control on everything. I'm telling control, even on food. And until now, you can see that 50 years later or 60 years later, you can see that there's not even chicken on Cuba to eat. Again, 
Rosie Gonzalez-Spears. I think that as Democrats, we need to make sure that we don't discount that. We need to hear people out. And you know what? Honestly, Republicans and Trump are just using that to scare people when they're the real strongmen, authoritarian leaders here. It's, look, what happened in your country was awful. And we're sorry that you had to go through that. And Democrats are the party for you. We are the ones that are that make it possible for everyone to come from the countries that you came from and be able to, you know, grow up and run and be governor or president someday. We're the party of public education. We're the party of affordable health care. We're the party of increasing the minimum wage and making sure that people are paid what they're worth. And that conversation needs to happen early. It can't happen six weeks before Election Day when we're in a crazy GOTV and it feels so transactional. Thankfully, Forward Florida Action and other groups are doing that work now. We are essentially testing out a lot of messages and really working with people and saying, look, don't let Trump insult your intelligence. This is what Democrats are about. If you believe that health care should be a right and not a privilege, what sounds socialist about that? I think the overall message is vote so they respect you. Vota para que te respeten. And then you drill down into what that means. And the message is specific to every community that you're speaking to. If we can talk to people about what we're for, not just what we're against, in these communities, they will show up and they will vote for us and we'll win. It's the, it's the messaging of the American dream. With Latinos, we moved here because of the American dream. We still believe that the American dream works. We still believe in it. Not only do we believe in it, a lot of us have lived it and we're very close to it. My parents, who moved here from Dominican Republic, have a ninth grade education, moved to the Bronx, had three girls, and here I am as an advisor to the first African-American nominee for governor, right? That story happens in America, and it is so recent for Latinos. In Florida, the folks at Forward Florida Action aren't just talking to people who Democrats have traditionally done well with, like Black, Brown, and young voters. They're also organizing in more conservative communities, many of which are growing as more people from around the country keep retiring there. What we have seen is the migration trends coming into the state are coming more from the Midwest instead of from the Northeast. So we have this 65-plus population that's growing. So in the past 10 years or so, that population has grown about 32%. And it's Florida, right? Everyone's coming here to retire. And they're reliable consistent voters, super voters. Unfortunately, these kinds of voters tend to show up for Republicans, making a lot of these areas reliably red. Rosie doesn't expect Democrats to flip a lot of these redder counties, but she knows the party can't afford to avoid them. We need to be present everywhere, not just in, in reliably blue precincts. And so working in red counties, there's a Blue Wave Coalition group that has popped up all over the state. It's a great group of organized women that are really doing the work and hosting trainings and organizing their areas. 
as they've said to me, there are Democrats here. They're just scared to say they're Democrats because they don't know where any other Democrats are. <laughs> so creating spaces in some of these red counties where folks can see each other, they can be in community together, organize together. And, you know, we're not naive. We're not going to win those places. And that's OK. But we just need to lose less in those places. That is how Obama won Florida. Like I said, it's a 1% state, so every little bit counts. Lose less, register more, show up early, listen closely, and do whatever it takes to persuade people that voting can make a difference in their lives, even if their big issue is a local trash heap that smells bad. It's not easy to do, but Rosie is hopeful. We're also seeing a lot of young people that are energized and getting involved. We saw that in the Gillum race. We're seeing, you know, the Parkland students that have really created a movement here with activism. So, you know, I don't buy the idea that you cannot run as a progressive in the South. I think that we saw with Andrew Gillum's campaign, someone who ran true to his values, who was unapologetic about them, and he got closer than any Democrat has gotten in decades to becoming governor of Florida as a black man. So, I, you know, I, I think that, yes, we didn't get there, but we got closer than ever, and I think that's for a reason. That reason is the incredible work done by people like Rosie and Gina and Patrick to broaden the number and kind of people who participate in their own democracy. And despite all the heartbreak and disappointment that comes with a close loss, even when the outcome wasn't fair, Stacey Abrams reminds us that the struggle is always worthwhile. When our campaign came to an end, the question that I had to grapple with was my inability to win despite doing all the things we were supposed to do. How I handled the aftermath was going to determine how people felt about their participation. And that's why on election night, when the Associated Press didn't call the election, my speech was not about whether I won or not. My speech was about making sure every vote got counted. Because when voter suppression is most effective, it's when it looks like it's too hard to fight. Because one of the most pernicious and intentional pieces is that it's supposed to depress you. It's supposed to convince you it's not worth it. My mission is to make certain that people who are often kept out of the body politic, who finally ventured in, that they recognize that this wasn't a failure of the system alone. It was a failure of people in the system who don't want to hear from them. And that the only way to beat them is to be louder than them. That's the mission. And I'm still fighting about this, not because there's a job waiting for me if I do it, but because I believe that they wouldn't have done this if there wasn't something good on the other side. The Wilderness is written and directed by me, John Favreau of Crooked Media. It's produced by Andrea Gardner-Bernstein and Andrea B. Scott. Andrea B. Scott is also our editor. Austin Fisher is our assistant editor and associate producer. Music by Marty Fowler. Sound design and mixing by Alex Sugiera. Production support from Allison Falzetta, Sidney Rapp, and Brian Semmel. Kyle Seglin was our recording engineer. Austin Fast, Virginia Laura, Nancy Rosenbaum, and Max Wasserman were our field producers. 
Fact-checking by Justin Klosko and Soraya Shockley. Archival production by Shana Deloria and Soraya Shockley. Archival legal review by Chad Russo. Special thanks to Sarah Geismer, Mukta Mohan, and Tanya Sominator. And to Mike Kulishek from Benenson Strategy Group. Thanks for listening. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.